Romans chapter 9, did God make a mistake? It seems strange that Paul would interrupt his discussion of salvation and devote a long section of three chapters to the nation of Israel. Why didn't he move from the doctrinal teaching of Romans 8 to the practical duties given in Romans 12 through 15? A careful study of Romans 9 through 11 reveals that this section is not an interruption at all. It is a necessary part of Paul's argument for justification by faith. To begin with, Paul was considered a traitor to the Jewish nation. He ministered to Gentiles. He taught freedom from the law of Moses. He had preached in many synagogues and caused trouble. And no doubt many of the Jewish believers in Rome had heard of his questionable reputation. In these chapters, Paul showed his love for Israel and he showed his desire for their, their welfare. This is uh, the personal reason for this discussion, but there's also a doctrinal reason as well. Paul had argued in Romans 8 that the believer is secure in Jesus Christ and that God's election would stand. But someone might ask this, what about the Jews? <laughs> they were chosen by God, and yet now you tell us they are set aside and God is building his church. Did God fail to keep his promise to Israel? Some might ask that. In other words, the very character of God was at stake. If God was not faithful to the Jews, how do we know that he will be faithful to the church? So the emphasis in Romans 9 is on Israel's past election. In Romans 10, it's Israel's present rejection. In Romans 11, it was on Israel's future restoration. Israel is the only nation in the world with a complete history, past, present, and future. In Romans 9, Paul defended the character of God by showing that Israel's past history actually magnified the attributes of God. He specifically named four, attribute, four attributes of God, his faithfulness, his righteousness, his justice, and his grace, which will be talked about throughout this chapter. You, you will note that these divisions correspond with Paul's three questions where he said, is there, right, is there unrighteousness with God? In verse 14, and then in verse 19, he said, why doth he find fault? Verse 19, and then he said, what should we uh, say then? Romans 9, verse 30. In chapter 13, it's remarkable how Paul moved from the joy of Romans 8 into the sorrow and into the burden of Romans chapter 9. When he looked at Christ, he rejoiced, but when he looked at the lost people of Israel, he wept. Like Moses, he was willing to be cursed. He was willing to be separated from Christ if it would mean the salvation of Israel. What a man Paul was. He was willing to stay out of heaven for the sake of the saved. See Philippians 1 verses 22 through 24. He was willing to go to hell for the sake of the lost. His theme was God's election of Israel, and the first thing he dealt with was the blessing of their election in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. And then Israel was adopted by God as his own people. He gave them his glory, and that was in Exodus chapter 4. He gave them his glory in the tabernacle and the temple. 
the glory Moses beheld on Mount Sinai came to dwell with Israel. Exodus chapter 24. God gave Israel his covenants, the first to Abraham and then additional covenants to Moses and to David. He also gave them his law to govern their political, social, and their religious life. And to his blessing, if they obeyed, he guaranteed his blessing if they obeyed. He gave them the service of God, referring to the ministry in the tabernacle or the temple. He gave them the promises, and he gave them the patriarchs, which would be the fathers in that day, in Romans 9, verse 5. The purpose of all this blessing was that Jesus Christ through Israel might come into the world. Note Romans uh, chapter 9, verse 5. It affirms that Jesus Christ is God. All of these blessings were given to Israel and to no other nation. But in spite of these blessings, Israel failed. When the Messiah appeared, Israel rejected him and Israel crucified him. No one knew this better than Paul. Because in his early days, he himself had persecuted the church. Does Israel's failure mean that God's word has failed? The Greek word, um, and the answer to that is absolutely not. The Greek word translated taken none effect pictures a ship going off its course. So the answer is no. God is faithful. God is faithful no matter what men may do with his word. So here Paul explains the basis for Israel's election. It was not a natural descent, verses 6 through 10. As we saw in Romans 2, there is a difference between the natural seed, Abraham, and the spiritual children of Abraham. Abraham actually had two sons. He had Ishmael by Hagar, his slave, and, um, <clears throat> excuse me, and he had Isaac by Sarah. Since Ishmael was the firstborn, he, he should have been chosen, but it was Isaac that God chose. Isaac and Rebekah had two sons, Esau and Jacob. And as the firstborn, Esau should have been chosen, but it was Jacob that God chose. And Esau and Jacob had the same father and mother, unlike Ishmael and Isaac, who had the same father only, but they had different mothers. <clears throat> God did not base his election on the physical. If the nation of Israel, Abraham's physical descendants, has rejected God's word, this does not nullify God's elective purposes at all. In verses 11 through 13, God chose Jacob before the babies were born. The two boys had done neither good nor evil. So God's choice was not based on their character. It was not based on their conduct. In Romans verse thir uh, 9, verse 13, is a reference to Malachi 1, verses 2 and 3, which refers to nations, Israel and Edom, and not individual sinners. God does not hate sinners. John 3, 16 makes it clear he loves sinners. The statement here has to do with national election, not individual. Since God's election of Israel does not depend on human merit, their disobedience cannot nullify the elective purposes of God. 
God is faithful, even though his people are unfaithful. So in verses 14 through 19, the fact that God chose one and not the other, it seems to indicate that he is unrighteous. So some might say, and Paul asked, is there unrighteousness with God? Paul asked that, and then he replied, God forbid. So it's unthinkable that the holy God should ever commit an unrighteous act. Election is always, always totally a matter of grace. If God acted only on the basis of righteousness, nobody would ever be saved. Paul quoted Exodus 33:19 to show that God's mercy and compassion are extended according to God's will and not man's will. All of us deserve condemnation, not mercy. The reference in Exodus 33 deals with Israel's idolatry. And while Moses was on the mount receiving the law, the whole nation deserved to be destroyed. Yet God killed only three thousand people, not because they were more wicked or less godly, but purely because of his grace and his mercy. Paul then quoted in Exodus 9 verse 16 using Pharaoh as an illustration. Moses was a Jew, Pharaoh was a Gentile, yet both were sinners. In fact, both were murderers, both saw God's wonders, yet Moses was saved and Pharaoh was lost. God raised up Mo, uh, excuse me, God raised up Pharaoh that he might reveal his glory, that he might reveal his power, and he had mercy on Moses that he might use him to deliver the people of Israel. Pharaoh was a ruler and Moses was a slave. Yet it was Moses who experienced the mercy. It was Moses who experienced the compassion of God because God willed it that way. God is sovereign in his work. God is sovereign in his acts according to his own will and according to his own purposes. So it was not a matter of righteousness, but the sovereign will of God. God is holy and he must punish sin, but God is loving and desires to save sinners. Let's think about this for a minute. If everybody is saved, it would deny his holiness. But if everybody is lost, it would deny his love. The solution to the problem is God's sovereign election. There was a seminary professor that once said, try to explain election and you may lose your mind. But explain it away and you will lose your soul. God chose Israel and he condemned Egypt because this was his sovereign purpose. Nobody can condemn God for the way he extends his mercy because God is righteous. Before leaving this section, though, we need to discuss the hardening of Pharaoh. In Romans 9, verse 8, this hardening process is referred to at least 15 times in Exodus chapter 7 through 14. Sometimes we're told that Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then other times we're told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. By declaring his word and revealing his power, God gave Pharaoh opportunity to repent. But instead, Pharaoh resisted God. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Or, yeah, Pharaoh resisted God. And Pharaoh hardened his own heart. The, the fault lay not with God, but it lay with Pharaoh. 
The same uh, sunlight that melts the ice also hardens the clay. So God was not unrighteous in his dealings with Pharaoh because he gave him many opportunities to repent. He gave him many opportunities to believe. And then in verses 19 through 29, God is just. The, this fact of God's sovereign will only seems to create a new problem. If God is sovereign, then who can resist him? And if one does resist him, what right does he have to judge? So it's the age-old question of the justice of God as he works in human history. We know that God by nature is perfectly just. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Genesis 18:25. It is unthinkable that God would will an unjust purpose or perform an unjust act. But at times it seems that he does just that. He had mercy on Moses, but condemned Pharaoh. Is this just? He elected Israel and he rejected the other nations. Is this just? Paul gives three answers to this charge. Who are we to argue with God? Verse 19 through 21. And this is a logical argument. God is the potter. We are the clay. God is wiser than we are. And we are foolish to question his will. We're foolish to resist his will. See Isaiah 45, 9. And to be sure, the clay has no life. The clay is passive in the potter's hand. We have feelings. We have intellect. We have willpower. We can resist God if we choose. See Jeremiah 18. But it is God who determines whether a man will be a Moses or whether a man will be a Pharaoh nor anyone else. No one could choose his parents, his genetic structure or his time or his place of birth. We have to believe that these matters are in God's hands. However, this doesn't excuse us from the responsibility. Pharaoh had great opportunities to learn about the true God. He had great opportunities to trust him, to learn about him, to trust him, and yet he chose to rebel. Paul did not believe this aspect of truth because of his, uh, his theme was divine sovereignty, not human responsibility. The one does not deny the other. Even though our, our finite minds may not fully grasp them both, God has his purposes, verses 22 through 24. And we must never think that God enjoyed watching a tyrant like Pharaoh. I'm sure he didn't. He endured it. God said to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people and have heard their cry, for I know their sorrows. Exodus chapter 3, the fact that God was long-suffering indicates that he gave Pharaoh opportunities to be saved. The word fitted in Romans 9.22 does not suggest that God made Pharaoh, quote, a vessel of wrath, end quote. The verb is in what the Greek grammarians call the middle voice, making it a reflective action verb. So it would read this way, Pharaoh fitted himself for destruction. Pharaoh fitted himself for destruction. Romans in Romans 9, 23, the sinners 
sinners prepare themselves for judgment. We do it ourselves. We make our own choices. No matter where you are in life, no matter what your status is in life, no matter who you are in life, you have a chance, you have mercy, you have grace. The question is, are you going to take it? So we prepare ourselves for judgment. In Moses and Israel, in Moses and Israel, God revealed the riches of his mercy. In Pharaoh and Egypt, he revealed his power and his wrath. And since neither, neither deserved any mercy, God cannot be charged with injustice. But, and of course, God's purpose was to form his church from both Jews and Gentiles. We see Romans 9, verse 24. Believers today are by God's grace, vessels of mercy, that he is preparing for glory. A truth that reminds us of Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. All of this was prophesied. First, Paul quoted Hosea 2, verse 23, a statement declaring that God would turn from the Jews and call the Gentiles. Then he cited Hosea 1, verse 10, to prove that this new people being called would be God's people and children of the living God. He then quoted Isaiah chapter 10, 22 and 23 to show that only a remnant of Israel would be saved while the greater part of the nation would suffer judgment. Romans 9 verse 28 probably refers to God's work of judgment during the tribulation when the nation of Israel will be persecuted and judged and only a small remnant left to enter into the kingdom when Jesus Christ returns to earth. But the application for today is clear. Only a remnant of Jews is believing, and they, together with the Gentiles, are the called of God. The final quotation from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9, emphasized the grace of God in sparing the believing remnant. So now, you know, what does all this prove? That, that God was unjust in saving some in judging others because he was solely fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies given centuries ago, he would be unjust if he did not keep his own word. But even more than that, these prophecies show that God's election was made possible, the salvation of the Gentiles. This is the grace of God. At the Exodus, God rejected the Gentiles and he chose the Jews so that through the Jews, they might save, he might save the Gentiles. So the nation of Israel rejected his will, but this did not defeat his purposes. A remnant of Jews does believe and God's word has been fulfilled. So far, Paul had defined, excuse me, so far Paul had defended the character of God by showing his faithfulness, his righteousness, his justice. Israel's rejection had not canceled out God's election. It had only proved that he was true to his character and he was true to his purposes. In verses 30 through 33, Paul moved next from the divine sovereignty to human responsibility. 
Note that Paul did not say elect and non-elect, but rather emphasized faith. So here's a, somewhat of a paradox. The Jews sought for righteousness but did not find it, while the Gentiles who were not searching for it found it. The reason Israel tried to be saved by works and not by faith. They rejected grace. They rejected grace and they tried to please God with the law. The Jews thought that the Gentiles had to come up to Israel's level to be saved when actually the Jews had to go down to the level of the Gentiles to be saved. For there is no difference, the Bible says in Romans 22, Romans 3, 22 through and 23, for there is no difference for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So instead of permitting their religious privileges to lead them to Christ, they used their privileges as a substitute for Christ. Paul's final quotation was from Isaiah 28, 16. It referred to Christ, God's stone of salvation. See Psalms 118, 22. God gave Christ to be a foundation stone, but Israel rejected him and he became a stumbling stone. Instead of rising, quote, rising on this stone, Israel fell. Romans 11, 11. But then as we shall see, their fall made possible the salvation of the Gentiles by the grace of God. We need to decide what kind of righteousness we are seeking, whether we're depending on God or, excuse me, whether we're depending on good works and character or trusting Christ alone for our salvation. God does not save people on the basis of birth or behavior. He saves them by grace through faith. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. It's not a question of whether or not we are among God's elect. This is, this is a mystery known only to God. He offers us his salvation by faith. The offer is made to, quote, whosoever will, Revelations twenty two seventeen. So everybody has an opportunity. After we have trusted Christ, then we have the witness and the evidence that we are among his elect. But first we must trust him. We must receive by faith his righteousness. That alone can guarantee heaven. No one will deny that there are, there are many mysteries connected with divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Nowhere does God ask us to choose between these two truths because they both come from God and are part of God's plan. They do not compete, they cooperate. The fact that we cannot fully understand how they work together does not deny the fact that they do. When a, There was a time when um, Charles Spurgeon was asked uh, how he reconciled divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And Spurgeon answered, he said, I never try to reconcile friends. But the main thrust of this chapter is clear. Israel's rejection of Christ does not deny the faithfulness of God. 
Romans not not chapter 9 does not negate Romans chapter 8. God is still faithful, God is still just and gracious, and he can depend be depended on. We can depend on him. He can be depended on to accomplish his purposes and keep his promises. Amen.